Now we're going to talk about apocalyptic literature. First and foremost, we need to start with what is apocalyptic literature? How do we understand apocalyptic literature? We talked about how apocalyptic means, apocalypto, means unveiling or revealing or disclosing something. But you have to realize that not only is this what the word means, but this is a genre in itself. This is a whole genre in itself. Like poetry is drastically different than prose. Prose is like your narrative. And then and there was this old lady and she got up in the morning and she went to the grocery store and she bought broccoli and she came home and now she's chopping broccoli. Okay? <laughs> and so that's prose. Prose is like cause and effect. And then, and then, and then, and you just go on. Poetry is, there's no chronology necessarily. It's not sequential. It's not trying to tell you a story necessarily. It can, but it's a goal. Poetry is trying to paint imagery and pictures of abstract ideas and concepts. And in, in a lot of times of poetry with the Psalms, also paint pictures of emotions. And so it's a completely different genre. And we know this, and wisdom literature is a completely different genre. If you try to take it like this is literally how things are, you're going to be very suicidal and depressed because you're never going to be good enough in wisdom literature. And there is no gray area in between. And you're going to be like, I don't fit this, therefore I must not really be a Christian. Because you don't understand the genre. But if you understand the genre, you're like, okay, this is what I'm thriving for and what I'm abstaining from, not who I really am am in this moment. And so understanding genre is very important, right? And then if you're like a lawyer and you're reading like contracts and law documents, that's completely different. And then a lawyer can tell you there's, that's a genre in itself and there's a certain way of writing and wording things and reading it and understanding it. One of the biggest faults and one of the biggest weaknesses for lack of better words that we have as Americans is we don't live and breathe apocalyptic literature. We come to it and we misunderstand a lot of things because we don't understand the genre. We don't understand the type of literature. What is apocalyptic literature? This is the definition. It is defined as a spiritual unveiling of hidden things that exist in the spiritual realm or are soon to take place. It is a spiritual unveiling, not a physical realm unveiling. Therefore, Physical descriptions will fail you of hidden things, things that our brain has never comprehended before. It's like going back to King David and trying to explain television to him. It's hidden to him, and we're unveiling it. And the Hebrew language has no vocabulary for transistors and tubes and electrons and protons, and right? Let alone a metal glass screen that you look at, old school of the spiritual realm, which none of us have been there, of what is soon to take place. And by soon, we don't mean like end of the world. It could be like tomorrow. Like Zechariah 1 through 7 is, apoc is, one, is apocalyptic literature. But when he's pulling the veil back and describing spiritual unearthly things with earthly vocabulary, stretching it to its breaking point, what he's describing is coming within their lifetime. It's coming within the next couple of years. And then there's some things he's explaining that are coming way, way down the future with Jesus. And, and so coming soon can, is relative. A thousand years is like a day for God, and a day is like a thousand years. So that word soon is really relative. And so this is apocalyptic literature. 
the genre is the veil being pulled back and somebody describing to you what they're seeing with the limit of earthly human language. Describing things that do not exist on earth in any kind of a way, right? I saw Jesus. You're like, oh, what was his complexion? What was his eye color? How tall was he, right? And he says, he looked like a lamb with his neck slit with seven eyes and seven horns. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's kind of freaky looking. I don't know if I want to cuddle up next to that. Like, if we got that stuffed animal for our daughters, you might think. <laughs> and I'm like, but it's Jesus. Okay? But he's stretching the human language because he's not interested in what it really looks like. He's interested in describing what it is. Character and essence and nature. This apocalyptic literature feels a lot more like parables and dreams and even poetry than it is to anything prose. And you need to first and foremost understand that, that we're completely... Apocalyptic literature was like the way coolest genre during the time of the disciples. Like, it flourished pre-disciples, during the disciples, and slightly after them. Like, it was like Marvel movies in America. Like, it was just dominated the airwaves, so to speak. Like, the old westerns when you guys and I were kind of growing up, right? I was like in the tail end of the old westerns. It, it just dominated. And what's interesting is that when Jesus spoke in parables, the disciples are like, what are you talking about, Willis? Like, they, they seem to have no idea what was going on, what he was saying. They're like, Jesus, please explain it to us. Like, we don't get it. For us, we're like, oh, yeah, parables. They make total sense, right? Because we grew up on that because of the Bible. But when he began to speak in apocalyptic literature, they're like, oh, yeah, I totally get what he's talking about. And, and they seem to totally understand what he was saying. Examples of apocalyptic literature are parts of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 7. You can go back and read that. There's this beast coming out. They're all like mutated and they're, they're disfigured and they're, they're, they're conglomerations and they're coming out of the sea and they're trampling things and one of the horns is speaking to everybody and you're like, what? This is like a dream after like really bad goat's milk, right? But they get it because that's the world they lived and breathed. That was the, the end thing. So other examples are like Zechariah. You're going to read Zechariah. There's like all of a sudden there's these horsemen. They have different colors. They're like, oh, the horsemen of Revelation. No, not really. Um, there's different color horses with different people, and they're riding out. And then Israel is a basket with winged women who grab the basket and fly it off towards Babylon. You're like, okay. Um, I think I just merged like Wizard of Oz with something else in my dream, right? And so... And there's all and there's these like blacksmiths who have these hammers that start beating on things and they're up in heaven. You're like, what the heck? So that's apocalyptic literature. And then there's there's parts of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 38, you've got Gog and Magog, and some of you are like, whoa, Russia. And other people are like, what? Don't worry. But they show up in the book of Revelation, and they they there's this this conglomeration of it's like a transformer, like on Voltron or Power Rangers where all these nations have come in and put together on Gog and Magog, and he's just going out and stomping the nations like Godzilla. And then God, like, brings an earthquake to destroy him, then a fire to destroy him, and then, like, a plague to destroy him, and then the birds eat him. And you're like, nobody dies that many times. But it's, it's, re but it's recapitulation, right? It's highly metaphorical, and it's recapitulation. 
of the end times and that kind of stuff. And by end times, it means anything that's in for Israel. For them, it was Assyria and Babylon. For us, I don't know. And then other examples are now we're, now we're getting outside the Bible, like really cool Jewish literature that didn't make in the Bible. But then we got like First Enoch and Second Enoch. And if you've read First Enoch, it's literally like heaven opens up and reveals everything that was happening in heaven during the time of Noah. When the angels came down and slept with the humans and he names all the angels and all these things are happening and they see these chariots in the sky and, and it really feels like a dream. It really feels like a dream. And it would be behoove you to probably read through Enoch. And, and if you read through Enoch, it would give you a good idea of like, because Enoch was like, it was like the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings of that time period. Like everybody had, I, now listen, Enoch is not the word of God. Enoch has got, it's got contradictions to the word of God in it. But Enoch is, if you go into it realizing this is not the word of God, Corey is not promoting it as a devotional life, like, right? Go in it, reading it like, this is how the Jews of that time period thought. This is what they were really into. And it might help me better understand how weird and what's going on with Revelation. And even Jude quotes from Enoch and Jesus like references Enoch. Um, because it was the literature of the time period. It was the most popular cultural shaping thing. And all the disciples and all of Paul, they had read it. And it doesn't mean that they believed it was all going to happen. Probably did pre-Christ, but then Christ reshaped some of their thinking. You can actually go on YouTube and just listen to it. There's audios out there. It doesn't matter. If you don't want to, you can read the, listen to the first 10 chapters, and if you're like, ah, I've got my fill. I now have an idea. That's fine. I just, it just might be something you want to dive in or whatever if you want to. So this was like the literature of that time period. Let's go deeper into apocalyptic literature. It is literature that is characterized by vivid metaphorical language, highly metaphorical. Like, like going over, like if you go over like in the Middle East or back in time or something like that, and you're like, and so I might lose some of you on this, but like in my school, it's like, man, that was so cool. You got totally cr- cr- trolled and you are the drippiest. Let's translate that. We all know cool, right? It's coming back. And I don't think I ever really left. I mean, Ferris Bueller's day off, that is so choice. Like you use these metaphors all the time. And then, then it was like, you got trolled. That means somebody like totally like fooled you and duped you and in a funny kind of a way or they owned you and pranked you pranked you that's the word i'm looking for and you're the droopiest okay so my daughter comes to me one day and says dad there's this kid in the elementary school that says that your older brother his older brother said that you're the drippiest and i was like oh my gosh that feels so insulting like right like i'm some leaky sieve or something like that like but they found out like that means you're really cool or like right and so these are, these are metaphors, right? Even like, I'm going to watch the sun set. And you're like, no, you're not. The sun doesn't set. If you want to be really accurate, you're going to like, I'm going to sit on the circumference of the earth and rotate backwards as the sun disappears <laughs> from my view. But that doesn't make the Hallmark card as romantic as like the sun set. So we use these metaphors all the time and we switch in and out of them, right? The other day we went to the park, very literal, sequential, and we watched the sunset, metaphorical. And we were sitting there holding hands, literal. And we were just like, that's so cool, metaphorical, right? And we go in and out of literal metaphorical, and nobody blinks an eye because we get the culture we live in. 
But if you go to another culture and you start using these metaphors, like the cheeseheads went against the cowboys on the frozen tundra, some of you are still lost, but that's the Green Bay Packers and the Dallas Cowboys in a frozen football field, right? So, but you, you go to the Middle East and they're like, you got people with heads of cheese? Like, what the heck? So, but I'm using all this because you need to understand, like, this is highly metaphorical. Now bring the fantasy dream world into it. Like, right, you wake up from your dream, you're like, what in the world did that mean? It was so crazy. Like, I was driving my car. This happens to me a lot. I don't know why. But a lot of my dreams, I'm driving down a car on the highway, and highways are always changing. Like, I feel like I know them, but then they're not. The exit isn't where it's supposed to be, and da-da-da-da. But then the next thing I know, I'm, like, on a skateboard on my belly or something like that. <laughs> and the dream, I was always on the skateboard on my belly, and it always felt, and it's just normal. But then you wake up and you realize, I started the dream in the car, then I went to the skateboard, I was not aware of the transition. What the heck happened, right? We all, right? And that's what's going on in Revelation. It feels more like a dream that we have to interpret than it does prose. And that is the genre. Think more like dream than anything else that you've encountered when we talk about what apocalyptic literature is. It is vivid metaphorical language, symbols, right? A heart is not really a heart. Heart represents love, but it's not love. You can't taste, touch, hold, love. So we reuse a symbol. And it's not even what a heart really is. It's a dream of what a heart is. Like, because you don't really want to give a Hallmark card to your loved one like, I heart you, and it's got the heart with all the vowels <laughs> and the blood dripping off of it. I don't know, that might be cool for some people. But so we dream up this image of a heart in order to communicate love. And so love already is something abstract that you can't see or touch or taste or feel. So then you have to come up with language to describe love and a symbol that is physical to describe love. But we're not really excited about the real heart symbol. So then we dream up another one and then you have to be a part of the culture to see all the connections and how it traces back to what love is. And then even then, is it love my backpack or love my wife or love my kids or, right? This is what apocalyptic literature is. It's dreams that are communicating abstract ideas that have to be rooted in history and time, space, time, and matter somehow. Apocalyptic literature is characterized by vivid metaphorical language, symbols, eschatological events, dualistic ideas of good and evil, God and Satan, and strange and dangerous animals or angels of spiritual realm, numerical symbology, pessimism over the hostile and wicked society, meaning they're very pessimistic about how this world is going to end and the evil sense, and governments, pessimistic, very pessimistic of governments and their future, and the sovereign Yahweh breaking into the material realm to judge the wickedness of the world and redeem it. There's all these themes. Dualism. It's like I mentioned with the wisdom literature. It's very black and white, this and that, good and evil, God and Satan, spiritual material realm. There's, it's always full of all these strange and dangerous animals in these visions as, long as, as well as angels. There's a lot of symbology. It's very pessimistic. It, it does not like 
the wicked, fallen world. It will be destroyed one day by God. It does not like governments. Even though we have been called to submit to our governments, Romans 15, it doesn't mean that God approves and embraces them solely. He uses them, but he does lift them up for his use, but he also brings them all down. They all will fall. And he's very pessimistic, very anti the governments because they're always corrupt and they're always oppressive in some way. And ultimately, the main idea, remember, Revelation, apocalyptic literature, is an unveiling of what was hidden, a revealing. So ultimately, is the sovereign Yahweh breaking into the material realm in order to judge the wickedness of the world and redeem it? Is ultimately God breaking through the veil between the spiritual and material realm and coming crashing through with all of his sovereignty and all of his salvation in order to judge the wickedness of the world and redeem his people. There's simply a part of the overall scenery. The important thing is not to say, what does that horn mean for America and our time chronology? The question is, how does that horn fit into the eye and the lamb and the slit neck on a throne with the elders around it to communicate a big idea picture of what's going on? If you focus on the details and make that the primary focus and the end all goal to say something about life, then you get into these weird views of what this is going to be. But if you can paint, put all the pictures, all the images together like a puzzle, Right? Nobody wants to zoom in on a picture and focus on one thing and say, that's the point. Not exactly, but it's like when you take all those pictures and put them all together and then they, they form a bigger picture. And if you just focus on that one picture, you're like, yeah, that's really cool. That's a picture of me and my kids. But you have to zoom out and see how it builds the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is the main point. That's what we need to focus on. We need to learn how to not focus on the image to say something about what's going to happen one day in America, but put all the images together to learn what it's saying about God or what it's saying about us. God's greatest desire is not to give you a roadmap for the future. God's greatest desire is to make himself known and help you understand yourself better so that you can know God and come into a relationship with him. How all the details develop the big picture and image and feeling is the best. And that's another important thing. We should feel these pictures. D.A. Carson is a phenomenal scholar, and he says something like, these images were never meant to be painted. They were never meant to be drawn. They were never meant to be photographed. Because they, they produce these weird images that do not draw us towards God. They scare children away. They're meant to create a feeling and an idea of who it is. And to create an image of it just tempts us into idolatry and graven images. And it reduces God for who he is. If I took a photograph of you yelling at your kids or, or even a photograph of you hugging somebody and just, just flash that around everybody, that's not who you are in your entirety, the good or the bad. But if I kept flashing it to everybody all the time, Facebook, they're going to think that you're awesome with a wonderful life all the time. But if I show you like the bad picture of you all the time, gossip, they're going to think you're that horrible person all the time. And you're neither. You're a mixture of both and, and not even that. What it does is it, it reduces you to this simplistic one image facet thing. And when we take these pictures of God and we paint them and put them on our wall and we focus on them, 
then it reduces God to this one thing. And he's so much bigger than that. And that's why God said no graven images. The images were not meant for you to paint, to have on your wall, to unintentionally reduce him in your mind. They were meant to create an idea of what, who he is like in that one moment, at that one angle, to create a feeling that would draw you into a theological reality of who he is to have a more intimate emotional experience with him. And when that then happens, then discard the image and rest in Christ. That's what we need to focus on here as we go through. It is highly symbolic. It is hyperbolic. It is fantasy. It is dreamlike. The imagery is not meant to be interpreted. Daniel 7 is an example of this. Daniel has a dream of the sea. And we're going to talk about this a lot. All throughout the Bible, water that is calm and placid springs, rivers, and lakes are an image of life and tranquility with God. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs for him. You are like a tree that is firmly branded in the springs, right? I have water everlasting for you. I got a river of life flowing out of me, right? But in the Bible, every time you see the seawater, the raging, chaotic sea, it's always an image of chaos. And it can be either neutral, just chaos like a stampede of animals going through the woods. It's not evil or bad, but it does create chaos. Or it can be evil like a serial killer coming into the room. It's chaos. And, it's, and, it, and as the Bible goes on, it becomes more and more evil than it is just neutral. But it's never good because life doesn't thrive in chaos. You might think some of you that it does, but as fastidious people are saying you're wrong, okay? And God says you're wrong too because he ordered everything. Don't take that as an offense. Chaos is always evil and bad. And so sometimes the nations are portrayed as the sea. Sometimes we are portrayed as the sea. Sometimes just the embodiment of an abstract idea is portrayed as the sea. But it's a concrete picture to communicate an abstract concept. And it's one that we can relate to because even with all of our technology today in our biggest boats, we still cannot harness the power of the sea. And we're all scared of it. And what's down there, especially as we go deeper and find new things, and everybody boards up their house and flees when the hurricane comes. And those who don't, we're like, what? That doesn't make sense. Right? And there are three images of chaos. We're going to talk about the three images of chaos are the sea raging, the Leviathan dragon serpent, Satan is a seven-headed dragon in Revelation, and darkness. The kingdom of the beast was plunged into darkness. These are the three main symbols of chaos. Nobody has ever harnessed these. So what does Jesus do? Where does the dragon come from? Out of the sea. You're going to see that in the book of Daniel. You're going to see that in the book of Revelation. So one day the disciples are in a boat in a storm, evil, in the middle of the night, darkness, evil, and something comes up out of the sea to grab them, evil. It's the most evil time at the most evil place with the most evil thing coming for them. They were scared of their mind. And then who is it? Jesus. And what is he doing? walking on it. He speaks and it calms. No one has the power. It's the only time pre-death and resurrection the disciples ever worshipped him. Remember? Any other God than Yahweh is anathema. Blasphemy. 
punishable by death according to the law of God. And yet they are so overwhelmed by this powerful imagery of Christ subduing the three most evil things in all of creation, the embodiment of everything that is wrong with the world and evil and sin and suffering and all their fears, the thing that is under the bed and in the closet. And he speaks and subdues. And even though they will still take them a long time to really logically embrace that he is God and theologically work out how it's true, they are so overwhelmed with the picture of him in that moment that they are moved to an emotional, non-thinking response to bow down and worship him. And I guarantee you the next morning they are probably thinking, what in the world did we just do? We are in danger of the judgment of Yahweh. But that is apocalyptic. That's how God uses imagery. And that's what he's communicating. So in Daniel, you have this sea. And out of the sea comes these beasts. Now what's important in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a beautiful, wealthy statue. And it glitters. And it's wealthy and powerful. And it's the four kingdoms. That's his perspective. A corrupt, power-hungry man. But then Daniel gets a vision from God, an unveiling of heaven, of what the spiritual realm and the way that they see it. And God shows these four kingdoms of Babylon, Medes, Persians, and the Greeks. And they're not shiny, beautiful, put it on your wall, everybody admire it, great wealth, I want to buy that and have it. It's now these strange mutated beasts coming out of the sea. They're unclean according to the Levitical law because they're mutated. They're they hybrids of animals that are not natural. And, and, and they're raging and destroying everything. And this is the image they use because humans, when they're in the image of God, they look like a human and they act like a human. But when humans become corrupt with power and they reject their God, they become beasts, dehumanized by the, what they've worshipped, and they act based only on their instinct to devour, to exploit, to destroy, and oppress with corruption of power. And that's what God is communicating. That's apocalyptic literature. And John and Daniel seeing this as I was horrified. And I could not stop watching these beasts. In fact, his face has to be ripped away from it to the Son of Man coming because it's so powerful and compelling on an emotional level for him. And that's the same imagery that's going to be used of the beast in Revelation. Except it's going to be all those beasts together, which means it's even more unholy and even more unnatural and even more dehumanized. And this image is used of nations, governments. God does not like governments in the Bible. He uses them and he tells you not to be an anarchist and he tells you to obey them and submit to them unless they tell you to go otherwise to the law of God but in itself, they are a tool that he uses until the kingdom of God comes. Other than that, Lord Acton said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, regardless of who you are, regardless of who you are. Even David, a man after God's own heart, became incredibly corrupt and nasty. This is the image that is portrayed. There's no reason, nobody interprets this literally. Nobody believes that there's a real, like, seven-head, seven, sorry, four-head, four-winged leopard or a winged lion or, like, a Quasimodo hunchback bear coming at you. 
Nobody believes that. And so this is one of the things that you must understand is that they're highly, highly symbolic. Okay, when we get to the picture of Jesus, I'm going to wrap it up. We get the picture of Jesus, right? In the very, very beginning of Revelation, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. His eyes are on fire. His hair is all white. His, his legs are bronzed. That's not what Jesus literally looks like. He's got seven eyes. Later, he's got seven eyes, seven horns. There's a lamb with his neck slit. It's supposed to make you feel something. These are examples of apocalyptic literature. And so my first point about apocalyptic literature is you need to take all the, the imagery, the horns, the eyes, the claws, the beast coming out of the sea, the mutation, and you need to put it all together. First, you interpret each symbol the way that they would have interpreted it. Then you put it all together to have a picture of what this is saying about the idea or the character of something. And then you let it make you feel something. Does that make sense? And that's the first thing you need to understand about apocalyptic literature is it's highly symbolic, highly metaphorical, and you need to see it more like a dream that needs to be all put together than as individual things that are saying something literal about what's going to happen. It's meant to communicate an idea or a character trait or an essence about something that makes you feel something and know something than to tell you something about history or time. It can tell you that, but that's a secondary thing. Does that make sense? The next characteristic of apocalyptic literature is numbers are always symbolic. Now, there's obviously people who will disagree with me, but once a number becomes symbolic one time, it has to be symbolic everywhere else. Numbers are typically what we think as concrete, mathematics and that kind of stuff. But in the ancient world, numbers were not always concrete. Um, even for us today, they're not always concrete. When we say there was a million-man march in Washington, D.C., no, it wasn't. Okay, there were not a million people there. But what we, we were saying is that the mall of Washington, D.C. can handle a million people, and it was really crowded. And so we look out there and we say that. When, when God says there were 40,000 soldiers who attacked this army in the First Testament, there were not literally, they just happened to have 40,000 people to the exact, it wasn't like 40,001 or 40,199, like in a half of a guy. The, what they did is that they, in the, in the ancient world, they would look out there and they're like, well, we know about this much between these two fingers can hold about 100 people. And there's like one, two, three, four. So that's about like 40,000, right? I mean, even today, we're not very literal with uh, everybody's doing it or like, eh, I've told you 50 times or something like that. Like, we don't use numbers literally, even in our own lives. We like to think because we're like this scientific, figure it all out kind of American culture. Um, but even like 60% of statistics are made up, right? <laughs> and if anybody's worked with statistics, you know you can manipulate them however you want, depending on whether you're using mean or mode or all that kind of stuff. So we're not really literal when it comes to the numbers either. And so Jesus doesn't literally have seven horns. There's not really seven heads on the dragon that is Satan. That makes us also wonder, is it literally a seven-year time period? Is it literally a thousand years? Is it literally three and a half years that the, 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 the beast is going to do this? And in apocalyptic literature, when you look at a, um, the first book of Enoch, when you look at the book of Daniel, when you look at um, Zechariah, when you look at all these apocalyptic literatures, numbers are never literal. They're never literal. Okay? Now, you can disagree with that, and that's 
fine, um, but this is what I'm teaching and this is how we understand it. So numbers mean different things in the ancient world. They mean things to us too, but especially in the ancient world. So three is the number of redemption. Seven is the number of completion. Six is one less than completion. So it's, a, it's an incompletion. It's a, a lacking. It's a falling short. Twelve is the number of the tribes of Israel, uh, which is the complete people of God. But eleven is an incomplete people of God. That's why the magical number of Satanism is eleven. The, the, the 11th letter in the alphabet is K. That's magic with a K at the end. The, the magic wand of the author of the Satanic Bible is 11 inches long. Harry Potter's wand is 11 inches long. It's a symbol of being the anti-people of God. These numbers mean different things, and that's how they're using it. And these numbers of 3, which is redemption, and 7, which is completion, 10 is like government, corporate completion. These numbers have been used over and over and over and over again in the Bible, and so they're being used in the same way in Revelation. This is what's called the law of first mention. The law of first mention is if something is introduced to you in Revelation, the first thing you must do is go back and see if it's ever been talked about before. And the first time that it's been used, that's the definition. And that's how it's used from that point on. We talked about sea represents chaos, and water represents life, and all these different things, dragons represent chaos. So all these things are being in symbolic ways, and they've been defined way back in the First Testament. And that's why I'm going to quote a whole bunch of passages for you in the next several weeks as we go through. We need to understand these numbers, and there might be some literalness to them as Christ. Maybe there's some prophetic nature. Some chapters are prophetic, and some chapters are not. Obviously, when it talks about Jesus taking the throne in chapter 5, that's not prophetic. He's already done that. When it talks about the beast trying to swallow the woman up who is Israel and she gives birth to a kid that's taken up in the sky, that's obviously not prophetic. That already happened. But then there's other chapters where it talks about the number of the believers being complete and now completely in heaven. That's obviously prophetic because we know that there's still more people to be saved and more people to go heaven. And so that's why we need to figure out how the symbols are being used in the First Testament so we can figure out whether it's just a symbol of an idea or prophesying something. But always, always, always we should be asking, what idea is this communicating? Our first question should always be, what is this picture painting of an idea, not what is it predicting? Because most things in the Bible are not predicting the future. Even the prophets, they only predicted the future for about 5% of all their messages. The vast majority of it was, you're suck and judgment's coming. So, um, that kind of an idea. The other thing we need to understand about apocalyptic is it's full recapitulation. We already talked about recapitulation, so I'm not going to unpack that all again. But recapitulation is the idea of um, going through things again. We talked about the two different kinds of recapitulation. I'd say that several times fast. <laughs> recapitulation. And we talked about you can recapitulate something by retelling it all over again from a different perspective, like a different street corner. Or you can recapitulate the whole thing again, but you zoom in and give a lot more detail on one thing and ignore a lot of the other things. There's recapitulation going on. And so the question is, how much is that happening? Some people believe that the seven seals followed by the seven trumpets followed by the seven bowls are sequential chronological judgments 21 total or it could be recapitulation the same thing from three different views talking about one one is the earthly perspective the other one is the god perspective and the other one is the creation perspective we'll unpack that when we get there 
But we definitely know there's a capitulation happening in chapter 12 because he retells the whole story of Christ and being born and taken up into heaven and Satan trying to kill him and attack him and that kind of stuff. And so there's times where that's being repeated here and there. They're, they're parallel. I'll give you an example of this. Daniel chapter 2, well, Daniel 7 through the end of the book is a very good example of recapitulation happening again and again. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of these statue with all these medals that represent different kingdoms. Obviously, we talked about this last week, but he views it, and the kingdoms of the world are beautiful. They're shiny. They're, they're, they're admirable. They're, they're worthy of your admiration, and they're wealthy, and they're valuable. We get to Daniel 7, and Daniel has a vision of four beasts coming up out of the sea. The sea represents chaos. These beasts are mutated. They're hybrids of all different kinds of animals. They're ferocious and they destroy. And according to Leviticus, that which is mutated and that which is a hybrid, um, even like polyester and cotton coming together. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. That's forbidden by Leviticus. When these, the, you have these hybrids, they're unclean. And they're unclean and whatever is unclean can enter, enter the presence of God. And so we're immediately told that these are chaotic, they're evil, and they're unclean, so they're the complete opposite. And it recapitulates the four empires of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But this time it's doing it from a different perspective, and the perspective is God's. Nebuchadnezzar saw the four empires, and they were something to admire and to become like, and they were wealthy and powerful and beneficial for life. When God views the empires, they're beasts. They're animals, they're unclean, they're inhuman, and they devour and destroy. And God is making the point that when we allow power and control to corrupt us, which it usually does, and we begin to oppress other people and misuse it, we become beasts, we become subhuman. To be human is to be the image of God, to be Christ-like. To be anything else is beast. When you follow your instincts, when you do what thou wilt, when you follow your heart, when you just do it, when you have it your way, that is when you become the beast. And when you have lots of power over other people, you cease to be human. And that's the point that he's making. So it's a recapitulation of the same thing. But then in chapter 8, he recapitulates again, but he only focuses on the last two empires, the Persian, the Greek empire. And he zooms in on them with a vision of a goat and a ram. Once again, animals. But these animals have horns, and horns are power, and they're beating in on each other. So he focuses in on now how they destroy, and they conquer, and they obliterate, and they break. And so he's recapitulating those two empires, not all four, but just the two, but he's going even deeper. And then he begins to introduce the idea of this Antiochus IV, an Antichrist figure. They would call it an anti-Yahweh figure because Christ hasn't come yet. And so it's this figure that will be the ultimate example of beastliness. And Antiochus IV comes around 164 AD. Well, he comes before that, but he does his incredibly beastly thing by desecrating the temple in 164 BC. So then we get to chapter 9, and he recapitulates again. He goes through all the, the empire again, but instead he focuses on just Greece. And he starts zeroing in more on Antiochus's kingdom. And then when you get to chapters 11 and 12, he recapitulates again and focuses even more on Antiochus and gives incredible detail on exactly what this king would do and that king and who would he marry and who would he betray and this wife that he marries and he kills that wife and takes another wife. He never mentions any names, but it's so detailed that every scholar knows what he's talking about post-history. 
And so Daniel is a great example of pure, pure apocalyptic literature that's highly symbolic. The Greece is not literally a forehead, four-winged leopard. Um, it, it, it's, it's not literally, Antiochus IV is not literally this horn that grows up and talks to people. Okay, it's highly symbolic, highly metaphorical. The numbers of the crowns are not literally there's going to be ten kingdoms. It just represents the completion of this power, the seven. But then it recapitulates again and again and just keeps getting more and more detailed and more and more focused. And that's what you're going to kind of see in parts of Revelation, and you're not going to see it in other parts. And the question is, when does it happen and when it doesn't? And that's what we'll break down as we go through. So this is another value of that. When we're interpreting apocalyptic literature, specifically Revelation, the first thing that we must do is understand that it's highly symbolic. The first question we should ask, is this symbolic? Is it a metaphor? If that is the trademark of apocalyptic literature, you start there. Now, with prose, which means like, and so she went to the grocery store, she brought some bro bought some broccoli, she brought the broccoli back home, now she's chopping broccoli. The first question that we're going to assume is this is literal, right? This is literal prose of cause and effect events. So then the question would become, is there possibly a metaphor? With apocalyptic literature, we immediately start with the understanding that it's a metaphorical, and then we ask, could some of this be literal? Just like poetry. When I read poetry and, and, and people say like, I'll give you my heart. No, you won't, you'll die. That's so messed up. What kind of woman would expect that from you? Okay, or she broke my heart. No, she did not pound her fist through your chest and rip it out. I was like, ah, okay. We, or I'm, drown, I'm, I'm drowning in my tears. You've not cried that much, okay, never in your life. We immediately assume that it's metaphorical, and then we ask, could some of this be literal? And that's the same thing with apocalyptic literature. So the first step in interpreting this is we assume that it's metaphorical and then begin to ask, could it possibly have some literalness to it? And remember, metaphorical and symbolic doesn't mean there's no foundational truth behind it. If I said I'm going to watch the sunset, that's metaphorical. But it's metaphorical of one idea and one idea only. I cannot turn that metaphor into whatever I want. It's not subjective. I don't say we're going to go watch the sunset, and you're like, oh, was the sun beautiful? And you're like, what? I was going to Mars. That's what I meant. And you're like, what? No, there's still one literal idea behind the metaphor. Okay? And same thing with she broke my heart. That doesn't mean I had the time of my life. Okay? So I'm not saying that there is no true foundational truth that is bedrock behind the metaphor. I'm just saying it's being communicated through a metaphor rather than literalness. Does that make sense? Because it's very clear. When sometimes when you say there's metaphors and symbols, people immediately assume you're denying some absolute contrary truth of the Bible. And that's not true. We're just using poetry to communicate the truth. It still only has one meaning. So the second thing that we must do is a reader must look for the interpretation of this symbol from the context of all revelation. So we start and we say, okay, if I don't know the meaning of the symbol, then is it defined in the context of all revelation? Not that paragraph, not that chapter. It might be in that paragraph or chapter. But if it's not, then I need to keep broadening my circle and to see if has revelation defined the symbology of this. So that's the second thing you do. The third thing is the reader must discover the illusion in the First Testament. If I don't see it in Revelation, or I do see it in Revelation, then I ask, was it, did it start somewhere in the First Testament? And so I'm always still going back. 
there the symbol is defined, but maybe it was defined deeper and more um, concretely way back in Genesis, and then it's been developed, and we're just getting the icing on the cake with Revelation, and it kind of defines a little bit for you, but you would have a much deeper, richer understanding if you went back into the First Testament and followed that thread all the way to the Revelation. That's the third thing you do. The fourth thing that you must do is look at the original audience's cultural context. How would they have seen it? If I'm in America and I'm going like this, most Americans interpret this as peace or victory, right? Okay, you go to Ireland, it's worse than flicking somebody off. If you have your leg crossed, some of you, if you go into, the, um, into Myanmar, you, you go to Indonesia, showing your soul to somebody is an insult. Okay, the feet, like, right, they take their shoes off when they go in the door. Jesus takes, they wash their feet. So that kind of stuff, the feet are nasty. They, they walk through dirt and, and, and animal dung and that kind of stuff. And showing your soul to somebody is offensive. And so the first thing I need to do is, how would the culture have understood this? We think, no big deal. We collect shoes like it's no problem. We show our shoes every year. And we even play games in youth groups when we trade shoes and nobody is offended. But like other countries, that's like anathema. That's why the guy from um, the Middle East, when George Bush was president, he took a shoe and threw it at him. And most Americans are like, what? What is wrong with you? But somebody from the Middle East was like, I know exactly. That's the equivalent of throwing your poop at them. That's what he felt about him. And so we must understand how would John and his audience understood this symbol, not a 21st century American. We must not, because cool and troll and you're the drippiest, right? These didn't even, troll and drippiest didn't even exist like five years ago, let alone thousands of years ago. So that's the next thing we must do as we go through this. Once you do all of that, then you can say, I did not find in the context, I did not find in the First Testament, I can't see it in the culture, maybe this actually is literal. Or I did find it there, and now what I found in the context and in the culture and in the First Testament makes it super clear that this is definitely metaphorical or it's definitely literal. But until you do all that legwork, you cannot adamantly stand on your soapbox and say, this is what it means. Does that kind of make sense? And that's important. Now, I've done the work for you tonight but I've done the work for you in giving you lots of scripture verses and lots of citations from scholars. So like the Bereans, you can investigate and search out what I say and find out for yourself whether I have correctly done it or not. I've done it as humbly to my best of my ability in prayer, but I am also a finite, limited being with my own subjectiveness and all that kind of stuff. So I am, that's why you're here, because I've done the work, but I've also given you all of this to allow you to follow the trails so you can say, do I agree with this? Is this how I would understand it? And that kind of stuff. That's apocalyptic literature. This is not just an introduction to Revelation. This is also laying out foundational concepts like the cosmic mountain and the faithfulness of God and the, 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 the themes of judgment and mercy and that kind of stuff. And these are not just introduction ideas. They're core to our faith and our understanding of Christ, but they're also absolutely foundational to, to understanding Revelation. Everything I say is intentional because I know where we're going in this book, and I know the groundwork that needs to be laid down 
for you to understand that things are coming. We're dealing with, other than Romans, one of the most complicated, confusing books here. Listen, the Bible is this beautiful tapestry of multiple threads and themes that are going throughout the entire Bible. And God starts establishing these concepts like garden and Messiah and, and lamb and sacrifice and atonement and, and these thin tabernacle and, and coming down versus us going up like the Tower of Babylon. And these themes start in Genesis. And in Genesis, there are these teeny little seeds, these teeny little ideas. And then book after book after book, he just keeps taking these threads and adding more quilt squares to more quilt squares. And he starts weaving this tapestry that starts painting the picture of this messianic king that's going to come and redeem us and then bring the kingdom of God to earth. And these threads are still kind of going and going and going, and they're parallel, and they don't really touch, they kind of touch a little bit, but they don't intertwine. And then when you get to Christ, he starts pulling all these threads and these tassels into himself. And he's like he starts winding them into one giant tassel that's going to come off the edge of this quilt. And it's going to mark it as something unique. And, and it starts pulling together in ways that you never imagine they can come together. And then they kind of finger back out into the epistles where the epistles start unpacking these themes. Like these themes have been traveling through the entire First Testament. Here's how Christ pulled it together. And then when we get to Revelation, it's the second coming of Christ, and they all start coming back together to form an even bigger and more beautiful tassel to finish everything. So we're not just doing a book study. We're pulling all the themes and all the threads and all the meta narratives and all the, the, the quilting squares together into its final completion. And this is going to be the final quilting, the final touches. And so... This book is going to be a lot of going back to the First Testament, back to the First Testament, back to the First Testament, because that's where all this is coming from. Hopefully this will be a good review for those who are wrapping it all up for the First Testament. It'll be a good introduction for those who haven't really gone really deep, and ultimately it will be a full glorification of who Christ is in his second coming.